Hi, this is Emily P. from Orem, Utah. Dusted is a story wonk podcast. To show your support and for exclusive content, visit patreon.com slash storywonk. Thanks! And welcome to the show. I'm Alistair Stevens. And I'm Lonnie Diane Rich. And this is Dusty. You're here to save your life, whether you like it or not. Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast. <laughs> well, we used to be a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast. Now we're just a James A. Contner fan cast. Apparently. Continuing on from Monday's show, where he directed an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, he's back with an episode of Angel. He sure is. This one slightly less successful than the replacement, is it fair to say? I would I would say maybe i mean the the writing on this one also isn't quite as compelling as the writing over on buffy i think james a contner could possibly be forgiven for putting most of his you know really solid creative energy into although they probably didn't shoot it in the exact yeah, same week that but, might be a little yeah. misleading i've certainly seen some speculation online that james a contner is some kind of robot right oftentimes these shows are produced out of order or at least produced in a fashion that would allow him to work right. with absolute focus on both Buffy and Angel episodes that happen to air happen to in air the in same the same week. week. Exactly. Just because they air in the same week doesn't mean they were shot in the same week. These things are scheduled in, in a myriad of different ways. So yeah, I, I would just say I feel like, you know, we had a lot of really strong creative energy over in uh, Buffy's episode this week, The Replacement. And the, this episode is maybe a little less It's a come down. Yeah. They can't all be A grade episodes. That's that's just the way that television works. That's actually James the way that averages work, a. I guess. A. Contner. There you go. Who's kind of an A director for me. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little, if you please, about the writer behind First the Impressions. The writer behind First Impressions. This is a freshman effort uh, by Sean Ryan, who's also a producer on Angel for this one season. Yeah, stick so around. Yeah. We'll get to know that name pretty well over the course of the next season. We will. He's got his hands in five episodes during this one season, and not even the whole season, between this, which is the third episode of season two, <laughs> until Belonging, which is the 19th episode of season two. He writes five episodes. Yes, only this and Belonging are solo Solely credits. Is, yes. Mm-hmm. But three other co-writing credits in the span of a single season. That is almost a Marty Noxon That is a output. Marty Noxon level. Right. No, this guy is definitely a busy guy. This Probably the only way, judging by this freshman debut, that we can compare him mm-hmm. to Marty Noxon. I would, I would say so far, but you know, here's the, the first episode. <laughs> yeah, we want to be charitable. We want to be kind. <laughs> this is not a great episode, and yeah. it struggles primarily because these characters don't feel like our characters. No, they really don't. This doesn't feel like the Angel team that we've come to know. Angel himself weirdly kind of gets a pass in this episode because he's clearly under. Some kind of arcane influence. Some kind of mystical influence. And Darla's Darla, close. I think, is, Darla's is spot on. Solid. She's so, perfect. Yeah. Unfortunately, Cordelia and Gunn both suffer in this episode by simply not being themselves. No, they're not. Whatever characters they are, sure, fair enough. Well, but... Gunn, at least we've seen before. Yeah. We know this gun because this is the gun of Warzone. Mm-hmm. This isn't the gun who's had some of his edges knocked off, a little texture added over Mm -hmm. the course of the last couple of episodes. And given the way that television is written, it's entirely possible that when Sean Ryan sat down to write this episode, he only had Warzone to go on. 
Yeah, but he also had like a few seasons of Buffy and a full season of Angel in which to get to know Cordelia. Cordelia, not an easy character to write. This is not Cordelia. I guess what I'm saying is there are observable characterization problems Mm -hmm. throughout this script, pretty much in every scene of this script. But I don't necessarily hold Sean Ryan entirely responsible for those. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. This is a freshman effort. I think Cordelia is tricky to Mm -hmm. write with great accuracy. We've certainly seen much more experienced Buffy and Angel writers struggle with Cordelia. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And this isn't a million miles away from the gun that we saw in Warzone. In Warzone. Yeah, I don't know. I I feel like Cordy is somebody that you you can nail down at a certain point. I don't know. And I always do tend to blame the writer more. I think maybe it's because I'm a writer and I always feel very (laughs) responsible for all of the things that I screw up. So I tend to be really, really tough on the writers on the show. Yeah, I guess I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that this isn't Sean Ryan's fault. As much as I'm saying it may not be entirely indicative of his level of talent. No, absolutely. And remember, the first time that David Fury wrote for Buffy, we came down on that real, real hard. And he turned out to be one of our favorite writers. As he turned we out on. okay, didn't he? As we move on, he's he doing okay. Right. So, you know, it, it's tough when you move into a show that's already in existence and you try to write something. And to write the first episode that he writes is completely on his own. It's and not an easy thing. kind of an atypical episode even on its own terms, even, yeah. even aside from the characterization problems, there's a weird structural imbalance in this episode, too, whereby the A plot feels like it should be the B plot in someone else's episode. Yeah, it kind of does. And the B plot, Angel and Darla, is barely a story at all. Well, Angel and Darla is so not a story that it's it's almost like just dipping into that story, sort of a framing device around which we get this movement for the mm. season-long arc going. Our B-plot in here, I think, is... Wesley and Angel are messing around on a motorcycle and can't get to the place in time or just get to the place in time. Um, it's just keeping them busy while Cordy and Gunn have a little adventure. So and just get to know each other. Yeah. Just sit down and have a conversation. This entire episode could have been replaced with a cup of coffee. Oh, it could have. I could have achieved that. That could have been a thing. My dinner with Gunn, sure. Let's get into it. We open on Lauren and Angel. Lauren, at this point... Of course, for those of you who are joining us here in the third episode of the season, Lorne is still unnamed. We're just using what will be his name for consistency's sake. We open on Lorne and Angel talking about heartbreak and shower singing. Lorne begins to croon and Angel crosses the club to take Darla into his arms. She says that she's always been there and they cross back together across the suddenly empty club to dance. She's over that one time he killed her, and their dates will remain their own little secret. And that's when we cut to Angel waking in bed with no Darla to be found. That's our cold open. Mm -hmm. The way that we frame the episode, both with the cold open and then the little epilogue that returns to Darla, suggests that this is enormously important. Mm -hmm. We have no context whatsoever. Nope. At least on Netflix, there isn't even a previously on Angel to explain how Darla came back from the dead. Because we know, we who have been so attentive to all of Angel's many labyrinthine twists, (laughs) we know what has happened with Darla. But if you're a casual fan of Angel... Mm-hmm. you might not know that she's been resurrected. Mm-hmm. You may only know that Angel killed her. And if you don't know that, then you don't know anything. You don't even know who this 
this blonde right. in the yeah, red you dress have no is. idea who this woman is or why she's significant to angel or what is happening and we have this you know this understanding that it's a dream as soon as lauren turns away from talking to angel and instantly moves into a musical number you know as though <laughs> this is actually on broadway i knew it was a dream at that point but then you see all of this stuff happening yeah. and it's all really weird and the conversations are weird and angel is not quite himself although because of that mystical influence that's being pulled on him during his his sleep that's okay i kind of like let that go sure, sure. um but yeah it's it's a little weird and then when you open with that you think oh this is going to be about angel dealing with whatever with darla and we're gonna you know and if you have been watching then you know that darla has come back she's been brought back by wolfram and hart specifically to screw with angel so you think that's what this episode is going to be about i do like though from the perspective of someone who has been watching, from the perspective of mm-hmm. someone who knows all about Darla, I like the audacity of the cold open. I like it too. I yeah. like that we just go straight into it. That is that is a serialized piece of storytelling mm-hmm. that isn't necessarily compatible with the episodic format, but which, for those of us who are watching Angel in this format, works really nicely. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I just love Julie Benz. No, she's fantastic. Because I think it would be really easy, and I think a lot of other actresses would pour on the sultry malevolence. Mm. They would play it like a femme fatale. And she has moments of that, but they're just sparks. Mm -hmm. And the bulk of her performance seems genuine. Yeah. Almost disquietingly genuine. Mm -hmm. It's it's I think it's a really great performance and much more deft and accomplished than it may at first glance appear and she has genuine chemistry with david boreanaz which yeah, is also really very helpful <laughs> <laughs> after the credits cordelia and wesley are cleaning the hyperion hotel when gun appears looking for angel angel's supposed to help gun track down a guy with information on divac a demon in gun's neighborhood in the meantime cordelia suggests that they can help but gun is dismissive of c3po and stick figure barbie just a note there gun stick figure barbie Somewhat redundant. Just Barbie <laughs> would cover it, I think. Yeah, I think maybe. Not one of those yeah. voluptuous Barbie dolls. Well, you could have Which said, I guess like, they've introduced now. <laughs> vampire demon fighter Barbie. They could, have at, sure. they could have at least thrown her a little bit of something for credit. A little yeah. bit of characterization. Yes, that exactly. would have been helpful. Yeah. David Nabbit arrives with sword and cape, making little better impression than Gunn did. Angel finally comes downstairs from his nap and asks David about financing the Hyperion. Information which David provides at a rapid-fire rate, warming Cordelia's blood. That's a decent scene. That's the last yeah. time we'll ever see David Nabbit. I know, which is sad because I kind of like him. <laughs> Although when he comes in with like the cape and the much too, sword, much too much. it's 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 really really overdone. Um, I would have liked to have seen that kind of dialed down a little bit. Also, the Cordy getting turned on by finance talk um, is not well, Cordy. If he had actual money, if he was talking about the things that he could buy. Maybe I could see that, but just know. the finance talk she's... itself, I don't feel like that's... I don't think she's necessarily that vapid. And I kind of like the implication that Cordelia can be enchanted, aroused even by an excess of competence. Uh, I mean, unlike most yes. of the people she deals with, David Nabbitt genuinely is one of the best in the world at what he does. <laughs> and he manages to yeah. deliver that complicated piece of dialogue with a great deal of charm, a great deal of yeah. style. No, he does. It just feels very flat. And this was the first moment where I was like, okay, that doesn't feel like Cordy to me. 
but all right. Yeah, I kind of got that from the first interaction between Cordelia and Wesley. Yeah. It felt a little off. It feels off that Cordelia is running around the Hyperion with a feather duster. Yeah. And then we're talking about finance, apparently not using the implicit justification of the giant bag full of money from last week's episode. I guess. To just explain yeah. away the entire financing of the Hyperion? I guess so. I but if you're felt... going to finance a hotel, you can also throw into that the staff to come in and clean it up. <laughs> you would think so. You would think. You, know, you would hope a hotel, so. A hotel's a pretty big thing. So I think that dealing with the, you know, it's, it's nice sort of when we get a call back to the dust later with the vampires. I think that that's an opportunity that we could play with a little bit. But overall, it's not. It, it, it kind of falls flat for me. It is a little flat. I don't think it's a terrible scene. Mm -hmm. But... Certainly the indications are there that not everything is right with this episode. I will take the opportunity to once again just moon over the Hyperion set. I know. That is so beautiful. I love that whole space. I think it's wonderful. And the thing is that the scenes themselves, I don't think, are bad. Yeah. They're just not our characters. It's it's a inconsistency in the characterization, mostly that gets me in this episode, more than that the writing itself isn't good. Yeah, I think there's something to yeah. that. I do think, too, though, that the depiction we see of David also leads us back to Warzone. Mm -hmm. This is very much very a Warzone true. take on David yeah. Nabbit, which makes me wonder, again, if that's if the that material that wasn't the episode they gave Sean, Sean Ryan, Ryan and they were like, right. go. <laughs> yeah, because if he was yeah. writing this in the hiatus between seasons, sure. which he may which he well, may have, well been, have been, yeah. then that would make a lot of sense to mm -hmm. me, both for David and for Gunn. Yeah. And honestly, to a lesser extent, to Cordelia. Yeah. If he has a late season one Cordelia to go on mm -hmm. without the power of to Shanshu in LA mm -hmm. and the shift in her perspective that we've seen over the last couple of episodes, I could see how you could arrive at this version of Cordelia, this ass-kicking protagonist version of mm -hmm. Cordelia, if you hadn't seen the change actually happen, but you'd just been told about it? Maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe. David leaves and Angel tells Gunn that they're taking the entire team to meet with his contact. Cordelia even gets to drive. Jamil doesn't quite turn out to be the badass that Gunn promised. He's changed his mind about giving information on Divac, but Gunn isn't taking no for an answer. He knocks Jamil to the ground, but before he can hit him again, Angel intervenes. This isn't how we do things. And then vampires arrive, and a fight breaks out. Cordelia dusts one, but Angel and Gunn take their sweet time. So long, in fact, that we fade out over the fight sequence and pick up later with the investigators licking their wounds and the vampires dust in the wind. <laughs> it's an interesting sequence. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Jamil first. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Something is immediately awry in the episode. Yes. Because Gunn has primed us to expect a serious businessman. Gunn yes. has primed us to expect someone with whom we should not mess. Someone where if he's going to meet this person, he brings Angel as backup. Right. Yeah. And when we see this kid come out from behind the van, and by the way, when I saw the van, my little heart did a tick. I was like, ooh, Oz. Um, every time I see a van in Buffyverse, I will think of Oz. Um, so this kid comes out, and it's like, well, why did Gunn need backup support to come and meet this kid? And yeah. then when the vamps show up, that seems to me to be something that's somewhat unexpected. So it's not like he was expecting to get ambushed by a bunch of vamps. I don't well, know. Well, no, that's weird. primed by Jamil's line about the vampires followed me here. Yeah, which but Gun... Wesley is very casual about. So I guess we're okay. <laughs> when when Gunn went to get Angel to back yeah, him up yeah. for this meeting, 
it seems to me like he wasn't expecting. No, that's not the story. It was supposed to be an informant, just an informant. Right. So that whole thing seems a little bit weird. It seems like Gunn is actually being like a little overly cautious, which is not the theme that we're going for in this episode later. So it's it's actively contrary to the Mm -hmm. theme that we're going for in this episode. And then we have this weird fight scene. Yeah. Now, the fight scenes in this episode are oddly shot Mm -hmm. by the standards of Angel. They don't look like normal Angel fight choreography Mm -hmm. because there are a few more people involved Mm -hmm. than there usually are. And because we have these incredibly rapid cuts. Yeah. It's disorienting. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's a function of visual style, if that's something that Contner is trying out. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a restriction imposed Mm -hmm. upon the shoot by the fact that they're dealing with all of these people in these, these mass fight scenes. I don't know if it's just to cover up the fact that it was shot very, very quickly Mm -hmm. and they didn't have time to necessarily stitch together the usual level of angel choreography. But it's it's shaky. Yeah. I mean, as anybody who listens to this knows, I'm not a big fan of the fight scenes anyway. And Mm -hmm. I usually tend to to kind of, you know, okay, all right, whatever. Um, (laughs) Tell the truth. Did you notice a difference in this episode versus the others? As far as the fight scenes go? Yeah. yeah, No, even to me. I mean, it felt a little weird. It felt... Um, like, and, and when we cut, when we stop in the middle of a fight scene and then do this, like, fast forward 15 minutes or whatever, where they're all exhausted and sitting on the floor, which is not typically the way in which we tell that story either, mm-hmm. it all felt weird to me. And again, like, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like an episode of Angel. Yeah. The characterization is weird. The direction is weird. The visual style is weird. Particularly. And I don't know. I can't put my finger on all of the things are they necessarily bad? I don't think so, but it's no, there's weird. Very little, I think, that is necessarily bad. There's very right. little you can point to and say this is just not good. Mm-hmm. It's just not consistent, right? And I feel that that scene in particular is one of the worst examples. The mm-hmm. scene of the four of them leaning back against the car. Yeah, it just doesn't feel like characters that we know. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, and and partly I think that's purposeful because, of course, we're dealing with the fact that Angel's off his game. We're dealing right. with the fact that he's not okay. But we're not dealing with that in a way that opens up that story. We're dealing with it in a way that closes down the story. Mm -hmm. We're not allowed additional access to what's going on with him. We're given no more information than we had in the cold open. Just that Angel's not, he's been sleeping a lot. We get that. And that he's not fighting at his usual level. He doesn't have his usual level of competence. And again, it feels to me like, okay, that's the direction that this a story should that be should not be in the it. A story. That should be the A story, which is Angel is is failing at whatever he's doing and trying to figure out what's going on. But instead, it's just this low-level hum in the yeah. background. And I think that when we say that should be the A story, that's not just in an ideal world, that's mm-hmm. the story I would rather follow. It's in an episode of Angel, the A story is generally what's going on with Angel. Exactly. Or the biggest thing that is happening. Mm-hmm. In Angel's world at that time, which is presumably the story of him being seduced by Darla in his dreams. And finding himself unable to fight at his usual level, which I would think would be something that he would worry about or question. And it just, and again, like that's where Angel doesn't feel like Angel, uh, and again, He's under this mystical influence, so I give Angel a pass for not being typically characterized. But, yeah, it's just, it's weird. I would, though, like to commend once again David Boreanaz for his comic timing, a skill that doesn't get sufficient credit, even from us. And we're we're more appreciative, I think, than most of his comic skills. 
<laughs> when we go through the whole thing about Gunn having yeah. not seen a movie since Denzel Washington didn't get the Academy yeah. Award from Malcolm X, we have this beat. It's it's a decent beat. Mm-hmm. Then we follow it up with another repetition, which is fine. Mm-hmm. By the time we get to Angel, though. Yes. <laughs> who doesn't like Denzel? Who doesn't like Denzel? Yeah. That's really good. No, it's very cute. And again, it's one of these things. David Boreanaz has this incredible ability to deadpan like nobody. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's that deadpan quality coupled with that perfect timing. Yeah. It just it elevates that line. It's mm-hmm. it's a nice scene. Gun isn't one we learn from movies or small talk or bare civility. He leaves the others to limp off home and goes to find Jamil. Cordelia drops Angel off at the Hyperion and then returns home, where she finds that Dennis has turned down the heat. It's another decent line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I kind of like that scene. And I like these glimpses we get of Cordelia's domestic relationship yeah. with Dennis. Yeah, Dennis nice is moment. kind of like her butler. Cordelia curls up with a book and is struck by a vision of Gun fighting for his life with a sword. Dennis throws her the phone, another nice beat there, Mm -hmm. and she calls Angel, who is too deeply asleep to answer it. Instead, he's dreaming of another date with Darla. Now, there are a couple of things that we should probably talk about at this point. Mm -hmm. The first is the rumor, oftentimes recounted as fact, that the outfit that Cordelia wears throughout the back half of this episode is identical to the outfit that Buffy wore in I Will Remember You. Mm Mm-hmm. It isn't, is it? It is not. Buffy wore a fluffy white sweater. It was fluffy. <laughs> it's It was fuzzy. It's similar. <laughs> it's a very similar it outfit. It is very similar, but this is, and as somebody who knits, possibly that may be why I take special notice <laughs> of the sweater, but I would say this is more of a cotton knit, and Buffy's was more of a, like, an angora kind of fluffy, fuzzy wool thing, so, yeah, not the same outfit. Very similar, though. I will take your word for white it. White sweater. Everything you just said, good by me. Dark pants. The far more pressing problem with this scene, though, Mm -hmm. is that this isn't how Cordelia's visions work. No. This vague glimpse, and I'm thinking of this particularly coupled with the explanation that Cordelia offers at the end (laughs) of the episode, that doesn't seem to be consistent with the way that her visions have been depicted in the past. Mm -hmm. Now, we can perhaps speculate. Now we know that there are prophecies to consider. Now we know that there is a battle coming. We might be able to speculate that whatever power channels these visions to Cordelia is giving her something a little atypical. Mm -hmm. That her mission to save Gunn, not from the dangerous demon, but from himself, Mm -hmm. might actually be purposeful, might actually be important. But we kind of have to build that speculation on our own, don't we? I think so, because there's nothing that indicates in this episode that even Cordelia feels this is atypical, this is weird, this is different. There's no acknowledgement of that. Yeah, she doesn't present it as being unlike her regular visions. Right. She doesn't say, this one was different, this is why I'm I'm handling it yeah. in this completely atypical way. So with Angel dreaming of Darla, Cordelia leaves a message for Wesley. In the meantime, she's going to help Gunn herself. She grabs an axe, resolves herself to her fate, and leaves the house. At Gunn's place, she sees Gunn fighting with someone and strikes swiftly, saving him from a training exercise. She has embarrassed herself in front of the whole Gunn gang. What do we think of kick-ass protagonist action Cordelia? Okay. I like 
at Cordelia? <laughs> I mean, okay, because I like an Because active... all those words I just said are your favorite words. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> like, I like this this version of Cordelia in and of herself. I find it a little bit like she breaks into this laundry room. And again, it's the lack of Sunnydale peripheral vision. There's like a group of like 15 people just <laughs> off to her left. And you know, she's running in. She's trying to save, you know, Gun and all of that. She whacks this guy in the back of the head who is, you know, human and not a demon and which is probably why she used the blunt end of the axe rather sure. than the sharp end um but yeah no it all it just feels like a weird thing it, it's kind of hard to believe that she would rush in like that that she wouldn't shout out to gun that she wouldn't you know what i'm saying like or she would yeah. look around and look at the fact that there's a bunch of people watching might indicate that this isn't this that is thing. so it feels weird this is the problem i think with this core relationship through the rest of the episode i don't buy this from gun mm-hmm. and i don't buy this from cordelia either yeah i get absolutely her desire to help i get that she wouldn't take no for an answer but she also wouldn't just put up with gun being gun mm-hmm. She is a force of nature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't believe for a minute that she would allow him to talk to her the way that he talks to her. Yeah. So this entire relationship seems forced because we want this to be the cute B story for the episode. This isn't unlike Cordelia and Wesley going off to investigate the ring, for right, example, sure. while Angel is taking care of business. The biggest problem with this storyline is that it is elevated to the A-plot, and thus we just spend a lot of time with it. Well, and also there is this. She's had a vision. The visions that she has are ones of danger. This is what they do. She has a vision, and they go out and they solve it. Um, She has called Angel, but wouldn't she go and get him? Wouldn't she go to the Hyperion and find him and bring him to Gun? Um, there are just a ton of things that... <laughs> well, particularly because she knows where Angel is. Mm-hmm. How does Cordelia know where Gun lives? I don't know. It's his building, I guess. They've right. been there, maybe. But they seem to be only barely... Right. I mean, she and Wesley showed up to rescue Angel from the meat locker, we remember, back in Warzone. Right. Is that the same building? It doesn't look like the same building. I guess it might be supposed to be the same building, in which case, okay. Sure, fine. <laughs> we'll do what we can with that. Yeah, no, I don't know. Like, it doesn't It doesn't really make sense. It doesn't hold together. And, and, and I mean, I can whistle past stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's fine. Wait, but... Right. The problem with this episode is that because it's inconsistent, we don't know... What we're supposed to whistle past and what we're supposed to question, we don't know what is purposeful and what is accidental. We don't know what is a retcon and what is supposed to be. Looking at this from a particular perspective, Mm -hmm. we might be expected to credit Cordelia with a certain resourcefulness. Mm -hmm. She knows where a gun operates. Yeah. That might be, you know, to her credit. Mm -hmm. But we've no idea if that's purposeful or not. Yeah, no. And that's the thing. Like, you have to question absolutely everything. So it becomes this, like unending parade of nitpicking you know where it's like okay am i supposed to pay attention to this is this supposed to bother me is this not supposed to bother me not everything bothers me though Mm -hmm. because from there we cut to angel's dreamland where he talks with dream darla she has to go and angel can't help her wesley is pounding nails into a coffin and when darla disappears angel attacks him only to find himself back in the real world with real wesley flat on the real floor Angel pulls himself together and we cut back to Cordelia bandaging the head of the guy she hit with an axe. (laughs) What do you make of the dream sequence, first of all? And what do you make of Angel's return to reality? 
I like the dream sequence. Mm-hmm. I like Darla. The whole moon bathing with the ice and everything is kind of kinda cute like kind that. of funny, you know. Um, his, uh, God, the, the happiness that yeah. he has in those dreams with Darla, how you never see Angel like that. You never yeah. see him that happy. And also kind of that simple. The brooding is sort of gone and he's just kind of enjoying these moments with Darla. And it's sort of nice to see that, even yeah. though it is inconsistent with Angel. It's nice to see that. No, but it's credibly inconsistent exactly. with Angel because this right. is his because, dream self and he's obviously yes. under some kind of malign influence. I love the dream logic of the hammer. Mm-hmm. I love the coffin, given mm-hmm. that we've already had a reference to a coffin once in the episode. Sure. I thought that mm-hmm. was really nice. I like the simple transposition of where Wesley is standing. Mm -hmm. When we cut away from him banging nails into the coffin, we move to Angel, Darla disappears, and suddenly Wesley is right there in his face. That's a really great and and very subtly disquieting sequence. Well, we do this transition. It's not that Angel wakes up in bed from a full sleep. Right. He wakes up. He moves from his dream space, but he's already standing up and attacking Wesley before he comes out of the dream. Yeah. You made her go away and he attacks him. So there's also this sense that even though he is dreaming, the the space between the dream world and the real world is, you know, is really fluid. There's, there's a permeability there. Yeah. Certainly. So I kind of like what that does. It gives you this this very insecure sense of what reality is during these moments. Yeah. And I think that that's pretty cool. I think Wesley would be like, well, who is it that, you know, who is the she that you are speaking if of? If only Angel? Wesley <laughs> had paid a little more attention to pronouns. Seriously. <laughs> it is a pretty good moment. It's also the first moment in the episode episode where we're somewhat compromised. Our sense of the episode, of the reality of this fictional world is somewhat compromised by the fact that we're watching this in 69 on Netflix. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. Because Wesley has this crack about Angel being naked. Angel is evidently, if you're watching this in the Netflix release, if you're watching this in 16 by 9, Angel is not naked. (laughs) Angel is clearly wearing underwear. Which is cute. Sure. We also get a small echo of that at the very end of the episode. Yes, we do. (laughs) Where Julie Benz is clearly wearing uncomfortable looking nipple tape. Yeah. Oh, God. No, that is. That just, oh. I have to kind of wonder about the purpose of that when you are as naked as she is. Yeah. Is the nipple tape really saving your modesty? Well, is it about modesty or is it about you can't have any of the areas of the nipple showing and with the nipple tape, they know what to cover, like what to cut out. Like when you see the edge of the nipple tape, you know, that's exactly where you need to cut. I'm not sure exactly what the purpose of the nipple tape is. I cannot imagine (laughs) that it's a modesty thing. I feel like it has to be a production thing. It could be. If it was a production thing, though, I'd expect it to be brightly colored. Yeah, well, possibly. I'd want them to like green screen out those nipples. Perhaps with a a calming (laughs) mountain stream. Accidental, you know, televised nip slip. You can get really serious. Seriously charged. I mean, maybe that's part of it too. Maybe they put that on so that they can't get charged with that because, <laughs> because if there's an know. accidental edit where something does get shown, right. then the FCC but will not be able to these episodes aren't going out live. I mean, presumably they have standards and practices look them over before they make it to air. No, but you, accidents happen. Sure, Things sure. happen. Okay. You know? I mean, maybe that's <laughs> what I honestly don't know. If anybody out there is in television production and you know why – the nipple tape is in use at all because at that point, you know, I think Julie Benz is fairly comfortable with all the people in the room. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, I, I, I honestly, I don't understand any of that at all. I'm not sure what that is. It's just so interesting to see these tiny mm-hmm. oversights. When we were so recently commending yeah. Angel for moving to the 16 by 9 format mm-hmm. and for clearly shooting for that format. And again, we go back to Warzone. We go mm-hmm. back to the extras standing in the fringes of the shot. 
Or, you know, in the season premiere when Angel is not supposed to be shown, they've got the shot of uh, Cordy and Wesley in the mirror, and then Angel joins them at the end of the shot. But in the beginning of the shot, we see David Boreanaz very clearly standing there waiting on his cue to walk (laughs) into the shot. Um, So, I mean, there's there's tons of that stuff happening in 16.9, and I don't think that they were. Were they deliberately shooting for 16.9 at that point? I think they they were still... No, they were framing 16.9 at this point. It wasn't originally broadcast in 16 by 9, but this was the first of the two Buffy shows to move to that format and to shoot for that format. Wow. It's a fascinating fluid time. If anyone ever tells you that television production is easy, they don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) After Cordelia has finished tending to the sick, Gunn walks her out. She protests, telling him that she saw him fighting and frightened, but he's not worried about her visions and he don't get scared. Outside, Angel's car is missing. It's also missing from outside the Hyperion, but we knew that already. Gunn drives Cordelia to find the missing car. He's still dismissive of her, but she has an axe and mace, and she's signed on as his protector, no matter what. Angel and Wesley have a brief disagreement about Wesley's pink motorcycle helmet. Wesley gets sassy, and then they ride off together into the night. What do you make of that scene? Out of this entire episode, <laughs> this is the thing I really don't like. I don't I don't think Angel would care about helmet hair or okay. the pink helmet or why do I have to wear the pink helmet? It doesn't matter. I think and then you're right. Wesley wouldn't call him a wanker. It's also not That doesn't work. Yeah. I don't understand why Wesley has a pink motorcycle helmet. Uh, for the ladies. Are we supposed yeah. to infer that that is Cordelia's? Has he been giving Cordelia a ride around town? All I know of Los Angeles from, you know, mm-hmm. TV and podcasts tells me that it's a driver's town. It is a driver's town, Very yes. little mass transit mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. So maybe, given the fact that Cordelia doesn't seem to have a car anymore, yeah. mm-hmm. despite that being her one defining characteristic in the first season of Buffy the sure. Vampire Slayer, mm-hmm. it may be possible that he's been giving Cordelia rides back and forth to the office, back and forth to the Hyperion. Perhaps in exchange for (laughs) running his business out of her living room? (laughs) Let me ask you, exactly how much scaffolding are you willing to put on this so that we can justify a pink motorcycle helmet joke? Apparently, much to my surprise, a great deal. (laughs) I mean, I didn't think that this would be the hill I would die on, but here we are. (laughs) (laughs) No, the the joke is not a great joke. It's not even a great visual joke. There's like It's none. It's yeah, I don't know. It's a lot of work to make this joke and it doesn't do anything except give us silly little intercuts of Wesley and Angel where we can be like, oh, ha, 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 while Cordy and Gunn do the main work. Still charming enough in the performances, though. Well, the performances are always fantastic. Mm -hmm. Gunn and Cordelia finally catch up with Henry, a used car stereotype, sorry, salesman, (laughs) with disreputable (laughs) sources. It turns out that Desmond's the guy they actually want to talk to, but he's at Tito's party where... Pay close attention. Everyone is invited. (laughs) Gunn and Henry have a brief disagreement about his sources. Then Gunn leaves, only for Henry to be approached by the hulking Divac, who knows about Gunn and is about to solve the problem. We don't get any sense of why Divac has a relationship with Henry. Sure. Or has a relationship with any human or being? Or why he's actually two guys under a really big robe. <laughs> On paint cans? <laughs> On paint cans. You know, it's a tough life for two short demons wearing one trench coat trying to get into an R-rated movie. <laughs> I just don't understand. I don't understand Divac. He seems to be not a demon, mm-hmm. specifically. 
he seems to be some kind of transformed form. Mm-hmm. Because presumably, if Divac were genuinely a demon, we know that angel senses can pick out demons in human form. Sure. At least they did it with Doyle that one time. Right. Maybe Divac isn't a demon after all, but the result of some spell, the result of some magical artifact. Yeah. That would be more consistent with the kinds of creatures that we see, even in the angel side of the Buffyverse, where demonic morphology is a little more varied than we generally see in Sunnydale. Sure. Mm -hmm. Again, a fair amount of scaffolding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We don't know why Divac has this posse of vampire minions. Mm -hmm. We don't know why he has a relationship with Henry. We don't even really know why he hates Gunn so much. Yeah, well, except that Gunn is... The big threat. Gun's trying to take him down and get him out of the neighborhood. So now they're enemies. Sure. Because that's how it goes. Sure. I guess. Yeah. Gun and Cordelia find one of his crew leaving the party when he should be patrolling. And Gun sends him off with a stiff reprimand. Cordelia criticizes his HR style, but assures him that she'll be able to blend in at the party and they'll be just fine inside. That is proved immediately untrue. And we arrive at what is, for me, the least successful sequence in the episode. Uh, yeah. But a sequence which is also rather difficult to talk about in any kind of absolute terms. Yeah. Here's the thing. This entire party sequence feels like an uncomfortable caricature of that scene from other movies. Mm-hmm. This afternoon, as we sit down to record this episode, we received some tweets from Nat on Twitter Commenting about diversity in Joss Whedon properties. Mm -hmm. Talking about the lack of diversity in Joss Whedon properties. A topic that we have addressed in the past. Yeah. We've alighted upon that. We've certainly been critical of both Buffy and Angel for being fairly comprehensively Caucasian. Comprehensively Caucasian. And when there is somebody who is, um, you know, who is from any other <laughs> racial or ethnic group we tend to see them through a somewhat stereotypical lens. Is that fair? I think it's absolutely fair. I think it goes all the way back to Kendra in Buffy the Vampire it, Slayer. I think that it does. And and the thing is that um, this particular scene in this particular episode is really uncomfortable for me in a lot of ways. And I have a difficult time sort of putting my finger on exactly what it is. And I don't want to end up you know, creating a whole big, you know, accusation out of something. I find it much more interesting to be able to talk about these things in in like broader well, cultural terms that like rather than saying Joss Whedon is super racist, yo. No, I certainly don't you know, think that's the I case. And I don't want to say that. But I would distill it down to two things. Gun as a black male character mm -hmm. in popular fiction is always going to have a somewhat suspicious relationship with anger. Mm -hmm. The angry black man is a very common narrative trope. Yes. And given that we've kind of doubled down on that in this episode, we're already primed to be a little sensitive to those kinds of depictions. And then we arrive at the party scene where everyone, but everyone, is plucked directly from central casting. Well, yeah. And in a way that is... Um it has, like, no relevance to who they actually are. But yeah, no and... consistency. There's no community right. or culture here. 
This it's is supposedly just... like a party where people are, you know, where Tito, who's a person who steals cars <laughs> or like, you know, like where the criminal element is hanging out. Right. And then we go in and the first person we bump into is, of course, Veronica, mm-hmm. who seems to me to be like your standard college co-ed. If you had said, right. hey, this is my friend Veronica, the philosophy PhD, I would be like, dude, I totally believe it. But she is in this context another kind of cliched character. Well, yeah, and she's I a tropey like, character we've seen before. Yeah. Given her sexual jealousy of Gunn, right? That's you know a character that and we know this, very very but, well at this but point. But also like a girl like that, like a smart girl who's like, why is she hanging out with car thieves? Why is she at a party with these people that Gunn is looking for right. who are troublemakers? Like she is not that kind of girl. You could tell just by looking at her, she's not that kind of girl. And Gunn has this line about yeah. you assume all these men are criminals just because they're brothers. No. Okay, but every character that we're introduced to is specifically textually a criminal. Well, and also or he's going there looking for a car thief because the car thief hangs out at Tito's. Like, yeah. I don't know if Desmond is hanging out with a lot of people who are like at the local college, but everybody else in this in this house looks like, you know, they're just like regular people. They're not criminals. And so the idea that simply because people are of a particular ethnicity or race, that they all hang out together, regardless of their, you know, sociological or intellectual backgrounds, yes. feels really uncomfortable for in me. In a house that looks like that house from the project. That in looks a house like it's that been condemned like, exactly. that afternoon. Which yeah. it may well be, because the vampires are about to show up. Right. And there are basically three explanations uh, for this. Huh? The vampires raid the party, and you know that when they burst in, I had to work out exactly how it was that vampires were capable of breaking into someone's house. Yes. Three options, Mm -hmm. as I see it. The first, this is not Tito's house. Right. This is actually a condemned building that they're just tearing apart with a party. With full electrical hookups and everything. I have known that to happen. I don't think that's entirely outside the realm of possibility. The second goes back to that line that I drew your attention to earlier, Mm -hmm. where Henry said, everyone is invited. Everyone is invited. Some kind of general invite. So all of the vampires were invited because everyone is invited. Well, we've is that seen, why we get that weird line from Henry? We've seen something similar happen in Buffy the Vampire Slayer before, mm-hmm. but not since the movie. Yeah. When that's the excuse for the vampires raiding the school dance at the end of the film. <laughs> everybody's invited. Is that everybody's invited. Yeah. And I don't know that the rules of invitation for vampires are open to metaphor. Yeah. Maybe. There is a third option, mm-hmm. which is that this is Tito's party. This is Tito's house that Tito was outside, perhaps having a cigarette, and and was the first person to die. Oh, maybe. Because as soon as Tito dies... Oh, as soon as he's dead. Right. No, that is definitely a possibility. To me, it feels like just kind of sloppy writing. I kind of want to believe that it's the condemned house argument. I kind of want to think that that's the solution and that this is a deliberately okay, broad cross-section pulled together. Why is Veronica together. hanging out with car thieves in a condemned house? Hey, you don't know Veronica's this deal. This woman is obviously You don't know Veronica's deal. The smart. only thing... We know two things about Veronica. Yeah. One, she is into gun. Two, she has the potential to be a really good prostitute. Oh, right. Thanks to oh, Cordelia's God. awful introductory that's monologue. That's completely the most awkward thing. And Cordy does know how to conduct herself. That's another thing that's completely she out of character for does. Cordy. Yeah, no, I, I look at this Veronica girl and I think this is a kid just like, you know, a million <laughs> other kids. She's hanging out with car thieves because she's black. It makes me horribly uncomfortable and I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I feel exactly, <laughs> you know, exactly yeah. the same way. Mm-hmm. Gunn leads Cordelia through the party to find Desmond, and they talk a little about philanthropy and trickle-down economics, 
but no sooner have they found Desmond than the pack of vampires attacks the party and beat on gun. Veronica takes a glass shard to the neck, which is an oddly vampire-specific injury. Mm -hmm. It felt like that was going to be significant. I honestly thought that when Cordelia was bending over her, tending to her, and she had the towel pressed to her neck and there's all of that blood, I was expecting Cordelia to be attacked by one of Gunn's guys. Yeah. In the suspicion that she's a vampire. That she was a vampire. Or that Gunn would have presumed that her injury was from a vampire. Although, why her injury wouldn't be? Like, you know, like, why do we have her getting a shard of glass in the neck instead of getting, like, bit in the neck and then Cordy dusts the vampire and then she's still bleeding her her artery has been That would also work. (laughs) It feels, it feels, it just feels weird. It's it's too close to be coincidence Mm -hmm. and yet we're given no more information. Yeah. It seems to be entirely coincidental, Mm -hmm. which is just, just odd. Gunn and Cordelia carry Veronica to the ER and Cordelia briefs the nurse. This is, I will say, an unambiguously great scene. Mm -hmm. I love proficient Calm, capable capable Cordelia. Yes. Briefing the nurse on all that she did. Then the nurse tells Gunn that Cordelia probably saved Veronica's life. Mm -hmm. We have a moment that I think is really strong. No, I actually really like that. And I do think Cordelia picks up from here through the rest of the episode because Mm -hmm. she's not being she's not being called upon to be quite as weak Mm -hmm. as she was in the first half of the story, Mm -hmm. I guess. Later she finds Gunn in the waiting room, anxious and upset. He can't stop. He can't relax because as soon as he does, someone like Veronica or like his sister Alana pays the price. I really like this as an emotional beat. Mm-hmm. I find it baffling that we don't do anything more with it. No, I believe this as an emotional beat. I yeah. love this for Gunn. That Gunn is so haunted by the loss of his sister that he is absolutely like pushing himself. That- Warzone is fresh for him in yeah. a way that it isn't for us. Again, another callback suggesting that this was written very shortly written, after Warzone. Yes. Because mm-hmm. I think, if memory serves, this may be the only time that we refer to Alana by Alana name. Alana might as well never exist, aside yeah. from this in Warzone. But that as a motivation for Gunn, that is something that haunts him. That is something that drives him to do things that are reckless. I absolutely understand. And when we hit that note later on where she says, you know, you're being self-destructive, you're hurting yourself, I'm actually, this is the monster is you, the demon mm-hmm. I'm supposed to protect you from is you, and all that kind of stuff, Would I'd buy that if there were anything about Gunn's behavior that seemed to be <laughs> terribly reckless. This is the guy who brought along Angel to meet with a teenage kid, yeah. you know, Um so I don't see Gunn as all of the things well, like that he's a danger to himself. Unless Cordelia I don't see that in him. is trying to, but failing to articulate the argument that anger and obsession are themselves self-destructive. It's mm-hmm. not that he's physically putting himself in danger as much as he is alienating himself from his community, his friends, the possibility of help, camaraderie, rest. Except he's not. He's training a whole bunch of people to help him fight. He's completely immersed in this community. Yeah. He's protecting his neighborhood from this demon. He is as more attached to community than Angel is by right. a long shot. And by all so, evidence, more than Cordelia herself. Yeah, none yeah. of it. None of it makes any sense. It's not supported in the text of this episode. Yeah. Cordy and Gunn are having a little adventure together, and that's great. But none of this is Gunn's fault. This is, though, the culmination of 
this story if this story were in its proper place in the episode mm-hmm. and were the B-plot. Right. If mm-hmm. we were spending a grand total of 10 minutes on Cordelia and Gunn mm-hmm. instead of the 25 minutes that we spend with Cordelia and Gunn, if this was in its proper place, this would be the culmination of that plot and it would work beautifully. Well, it would work if any of the danger they were in was a result of Gunn being reckless. It's actually a result of Cordy being intrusive because the whole reason why they're doing all of these things tonight is because Cordy left the keys in Angel's car and somebody stole it. Right, though we're led to believe by Devek's conversation with Henry that he's already on to Gunn and he, that, that action will be taken. He is, but not because of Gunn's recklessness, because Gunn is being protected. Oh, no, protected. I, I'm agreeing with you about yeah, the no, recklessness. I'm just, it's it's the movement of the plot that's a little I, less. I, I gotta say, I love the scene. I think J. August <laughs> Richards is beautiful in it. I love oh, the way that Cordy is when she deals good. with him in this scene. I yeah. love this scene, but it's just, it doesn't, work the rest of the episode textually does not support the conclusions that we're coming to at the end of the episode. Cordelia accosts a fleeing Desmond and demands to know where the car is, and we cut away to Wesley and Angel arriving at the party. They talk to a woman about the attack, but she doesn't know much and something isn't right. Then Angel headbutts her, forcing her to vamp out and questions her again. That's nice. I like that moment. I like that Angel knows she's a vampire. I like that she's a clever vampire who is, you know, masquerading as one of the victims in the massacre. Um, I I like all of this. It's just, Yeah. yeah. I guess my question is, is she a new vampire? Was she just turned? I mean, she can't be because that's no, not because how turning works in the Buffy first. Yeah, she wasn't turned at yeah. the party. Yeah. Okay, I'm more comfortable <laughs> about that. If, at if least I don't, I don't think that was their intent. The head wound, though, is maybe a little strange. It's a little fast. Yeah, because usually, you know, they do the whole thing. The person's dead for like I don't know, but twelve hours, long enough to be buried in Sunnydale. Long enough to be buried in Sunnydale. I do very much like though how shocking the headbutt and the transformation is. Mm-hmm. We are now so accustomed to characters vamping out. Yeah. It's really surprising to be reminded of how shocking it can be in the proper context. Mm -hmm. I like it a great deal. I like that we don't get the transformation. I like that it's a hard cut. I love that. No, I think that that's actually really nicely done. Works nicely. Mm -hmm. Cordelia and Gunn recover the car, but without the keys, which luckily Divac happens to have. Divac hoists Gunn into the air and chokes him, only to change back into Jameel. Cordelia springs to Gunn's aid with the mace, and Jamil turns back into Divac, only for Angel and Wesley to join the fray. They fight, with Divac finally knocking Gunn to the ground. Angel leaps to the rescue, catching Cordelia's thrown axe, and buries it into Divac's head. He falls. Outside in the alley, Wesley has found Angel's keys, though no one's in a hurry to touch them. Cordelia tells Gunn that Divac wasn't the danger that she sensed. He's his own worst enemy. Which... Yes, as previously discussed, isn't is true. not supported by the story. And isn't how Cordelia's powers work. Mm-hmm. But okay. Yeah. <laughs> Gunn gets as close as he's likely to get to a thank you and drives away. Back home, Darla is waiting for Angel. She asks him about his day and bemoans the fact that he hasn't been thanked for all his hard work. She relaxes him onto the couch and kisses him. But in the real world, as Angel sleeps, the real Darla appears. She kisses the real him. And we cut to credits. Again, genuinely unsettling. No, 
a really nice little transition there. We see him yeah. in bed and he's smiling. Then we see Darla, you know, crawling up on him in the dream. And then we see her crawling up on him in reality. And it's this, I, I think actually this is one of the things where I love what the direction, when we go in this kind of fluid reality between Angel's dream and what's actually happening yeah. with Darla. Um, I love the way that's directed. I love the way that's expressed visually. I think it's really creepy and interesting. And this is the first moment where we actually get a real world confirmation that Darla is an active presence in Angel's dreams, that he's not just dreaming of her in some kind of prophetic way like Buffy would, you know? Um, And uh, and I really like, honestly, those sequences in this episode, I think are top notch. I think so too. I I absolutely agree. I think it's very effective. You're absolutely right. It's very fluid. Mm -hmm. It is unsettling. Mm -hmm. Julie Benz is great. David Boreanaz is great. Their chemistry is great. The odd alien contrast between the real world and the dream world mm-hmm. continues to be somewhat somewhat distracting yeah through to the end which it should be i like it a great deal mm-hmm. i'm not terribly happy that that's where the episode ends i'm not terribly happy that it's introduced without context unfolds without context and concludes you guessed it without context yeah i feel like there should be something in those scenes that kind of give us at least enough of a story in this episode to sort of pull all of that together. Again, if you don't know who Darla is, if this is your first episode Mm -hmm. watching Angel, you are completely out of luck when it comes to figuring out this B-plot. Yeah. And if you know Angel very well and you happen to miss her resurrection, you are completely out of luck when it Mm -hmm. comes to figuring out this B-plot. Yeah. It's weird that it's as good as it is. Mm Mm-hmm. It's disappointing that it isn't actually really a story. It's it's not. I mean, we're dipping into this to move that forward a little bit. Um, I think that had we had the Angel and Wesley thing being about Angel trying to figure out what's wrong with him and acknowledging that he's not fighting at the level that he should be fighting at and that something's going on and he's not really sure. Even if he's afraid to tell Wesley what's happening with Darla, he's afraid to tell him that he's having these dreams about Darla. But if he was talking to Wesley about it, because we had Wesley's pager get smashed um only for him to get a message that cordy left for him how much more interesting would this have been if alternating with cordy and gun's adventure we had wesley and angel kind of trying to figure out something that's going on with angel and i understand that you know if you're talking about the broad strokes for season two that this needs to be a secret for maybe a little while longer Mm -hmm. um but it could have been something where we had Angel doing something or taking some kind of action or just acknowledging that something's not right in that story space that we do have something that does kind of, you know, exist narratively in in this episode. Right. One of the problems, I think, is that there's no conflict pushing back on Angel. Mm -hmm. He's under the influence of Darla, doesn't seem to be consciously aware of it, though he's certainly feeling its effects. Mm -hmm. But nothing is pushing him to interrogate that, to examine that, to right. figure that out, or even necessarily to worry about it. He doesn't seem overly concerned that he's been sleeping a lot lately. Yeah. So I don't genuinely know what to make of it. It's it's frustrating because I think what we get is very good, mm-hmm. but there's just not enough there. Well, it doesn't have, like you said, any context. Yeah. So we don't know what to think about it. That takes us to the end of the episode. And I think that takes us to the end of the discussion, which I'm somewhat surprised to say has lasted a decent while. (laughs) I didn't think we'd have a lot to discuss Mm -hmm. about this episode, but it is such an interesting and complex snarl of 
things that are very well observed and which work really quite beautifully, all of the Angel and Darla stuff, Gunn's revelation about his sister. We've had a few moments that seem to work. And then there's just a lot of stuff that is either inconsequential or badly structured or outright problematic. Mm -hmm. It's a weird episode because very little in it is actually bad. Yeah. I think if you're very sensitive to the depictions of black characters, to the eutropification, the stereotyping Mm -hmm. of black characters and Latino characters too, I think that you could be very upset by this episode and I would completely understand that. I don't necessarily feel that it is purposeful enough, conscious enough to earn my disapproval. I'm left just with this vague unease and concern about it. Yeah, I'm left with a real discomfort with that. I don't feel like these things are necessarily badly meant, but they are badly executed, which makes me think that if we thought a little more deeply about the concerns in diversity in our storytelling, if we really thought about how we're representing these people and how we're right. talking about them. And if we had had those thoughts, had had those discussions back in the year 2000. If people were having those discussions. I mean, I'm glad we're having them now. Yes. You know, like, I'm grateful we're having them now. I think it's important that we have them now. I don't like to throw out accusations about everybody's a sexist, everybody's a racist. I think it's more important to ask the questions, to have a consciousness of them and to bring that into our storytelling as we move forward as a culture that will hopefully eventually work out some of these sexist and racist impulses that are like within the threads of the culture itself. But you're absolutely right. Yes, it's that cultural and creative context. It's that terroir. Mm -hmm. It's the the cultural milieu that we all are so deeply embedded in that it is very difficult to be mindful of it. And sometimes it can be. So developing that consciousness is about Everybody being part of that conversation and saying, hey, this is uncomfortable. Here are the reasons why. And let's have some kind of a consciousness. Let's think about this on a deeper level. And so I don't want to, like, throw out a bunch of accusations. I also don't want to, like, speak for every outraged liberal in the world that this is horrible. (laughs) And I think think it's worth a discussion. It's worth noticing. And it's definitely worth addressing in our storytelling as we move forward. I'm actually comfortable with leaving that as our personal resting point Mm -hmm. on the episode, that it is uncomfortable, it is problematic, and it's not really good enough. But it's also, we believe, I dare to speak for you on this, it's also, we believe, unintentional. I do believe that it's unintentional. You know, and Veronica, you look at her, you look at the way she's dressed, and you think, okay, this woman is not going to be at this party. Like, you see the way she speaks, the way that she's dressed. But then again, if she had been, like, terribly stereotypical, we would have been upset about that, too, because there's a whole bunch of stereotypes and stuff happening in this space. I think she is terribly stereotypical, but she's just a a stereotype from a different story. Exactly. Which is what brings me back to the idea that the party was thrown together by someone at Central Casting. Yeah. Yeah, and that we didn't we didn't think about it hard enough. Yeah. We didn't think about it. if we're gonna put gun in, you know, this whole urban culture, that's okay. But present it in a way that has texture and isn't relying so much on so many really, really flat stuff. Yes, particularly when we're making him angry and aggressive in this vaguely defined rootless kind of way. Yeah, because the thing is, is that, you know, there may be people out there who are angry. Usually if there's people who are angry, and and as an angry feminist, I feel like I can speak to this. um, (laughs) There's usually really good reason why these people are angry and maybe addressing some of that 
might not hurt you so much. Or at least acknowledging that the reasons behind that anger actually exist and are a real thing rather than just, hey, dig this angry minority who's upset about the way he or she is being treated. You know? Sure. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of work to be done in that arena. I feel like we are asking the right questions. We're talking about the right discussions. These discussions happen over on the StoryWonk forum. And by all means, everybody go there and have yes. this discussion. It's a safe place where people are able to express opinions as long as you express them without anger and just like, you know, talk them through. Um, yeah. we, uh, it's a great community yeah. for working through this kind of very difficult material in a safe and, and enormously kind and respectful and inclusive space. Right. The only thing we ask is that nobody posts angry and we find that it's not a problem at all. So sometimes we'll have these discussions and and there are things that maybe we say when we have these discussions that we don't understand as well as we could. And by all means, come in and educate us as well. These are difficult discussions. We've had discussions about rape and consent and feminism and racial diversity issues. And and we really have them in in a place where people can talk about them and, and kind of educate ourselves on how we talk about these things and how we feel about them. All I can say is that this episode does make me really uncomfortable. I feel like there are better ways for dealing with having a diverse cast. Um, And yeah. To change gears Mm -hmm. and to try and extricate ourselves from this side of the conversation, uncomfortable is not the same as angry. And I've said a couple of times in the span of the episode there's very little that is just unambiguously bad Mm -hmm. in this episode. I wouldn't put it down at the bottom of our list. Mm -hmm. Where would you put this on the big list of every Angel episode ever? I'd put it toward the bottom, I would say. More toward the bottom than toward the top. I'd certainly agree with that. My reasons for that (laughs) is that it's not an episode of Angel. This isn't Cordy. This isn't Gunn. This isn't Angel. Although Angel actually does have a narrative reason for being written out of character. Yeah. Darla's written really well. Wesley is not. Like, this is an episode that doesn't understand who these characters are, what they're doing, and also doesn't understand its own central premise. It comes up with this idea that Gunn is his own worst enemy when what I see from Gunn is that he is behaving completely rationally. He's protecting his... I'm not sure about completely rationally, but he's certainly not endangering himself unduly. He's he's not being ridiculously self-destructive. He, yes, is driven by something. I think that's when we get our best moment with Gunn is where we discover this, that he's really driven by the loss of Alana. But if we'd articulated that properly, it would have been about trust and community. Mm -hmm. It would have been about connectivity with others rather than hey gun go easy on yourself when you're by yourself over there by yourself but he's not by himself he's got this whole huge community and the fact right no i'm saying that seems to be the thrust of the the episode that seems to be the thrust of cordelia's speech to him at the end and it's completely not he just he's not with cordy and angel but he's got a whole community of people watching his back he's all right so i find it you know it doesn't understand its own central theme and its own central premise it is not characters that we know and understand they all feel a little bit off and a little bit weird let me pitch this to you because everything that you just said does sound awfully familiar as i look at our list of every angel episode ever an episode that doesn't quite feel like angel that feels as though it's doing something that isn't terribly well aligned internally or externally Mm -hmm. not great perhaps on the consistency but there are sparks of quality writing contained Mm -hmm. within it there are good lines there are good moments there are good performances doesn't that sound a lot like eternity eternity yeah yeah i can see that i thought you were gonna go for she um, which also sort of has some of that okay. inconsistency. Um, but Eternity, yeah, I think does share a lot of DNA with first impressions. I think 
she rests more on the problematic side. Yeah. Um, though certainly the plot is more internally coherent. Mm-hmm. But I think Eternity has some of that same atypicality to mm-hmm. it. It doesn't feel quite like any other episode of Angel. And perhaps that's an unfair comparison. We're just, right. rather than an apples to apples comparison, we're just comparing the only two oranges that we have. Exactly. <laughs> but I kind of feel like it does belong near Eternity on the list. I would argue maybe. Maybe below Eternity, above Somnambulist. Mm-hmm. I could maybe be persuaded below Somnambulist, above Room of the View. But I think I like this more than I like Somnambulist. Yeah, I don't. I would put it right above She at 17. Okay. What makes you look more favorably on, say, Room of the View than on First Impressions? Um, Room of the View, I really liked what we did with Cordy in that episode. And I felt like Cordy was well-written and we had like you know just i don't know it felt more consistent it felt more like an episode of angel to me well the depiction of cordelia certainly Mm -hmm. and i guess the weird monster of the week core narrative is a little more traditionally angel and it made sense less ambitious Mm -hmm. dealing less with the expanded world of angel that we're dealing with now Mm -hmm. you just think it, it it aspires to less but achieves it more fully I think maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. I, I'll, I'll meet you there. Okay, I'll meet you there. I yeah. might, you know, be tempted to go to the mat, but I don't care that much I about feel that first impressions. About it. <laughs> I think you could put it anywhere, you know, from from fourteen to seventeen on the list. Yeah, I think. I so do think too. eternity is the upper limit, and she's the lower limit. So I'm comfortable anywhere in there. And I if think you feel strongly, is definitely better. You've always preferred both room with a view and yeah, somnambulist to me, no, so I'm happy true. to to put this in there at seventeen on the list. Said more in confusion and disappointment, I think, than mm-hmm. in anger. Yeah, it goes in right above she. And that is it for this Thursday episode of Dusted. We'll be back on Monday with the next episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, episode four of season five, Out of My Mind. Prepare yourselves, guys. Till then, I'm Alistair Stevens. And I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and this is Dusted. Dusted.